Good evening. You know, there are some sermons that are in their design meant to persuade us, and there are others, I suppose, that we would consider somewhat more informational, and we never like to be thinking about preaching a sermon like that. I thought during Tom's prayer, uh, when he said that he prayed that the lesson tonight would be something that we could take into our everyday lives. I don't know in what sense that that might be the case with tonight's subject, but I do believe it is a subject that it's going to be very hard for you to ignore with all the headlines that are, are vying for our attention and all that's going on in our world right now, I don't know that there's anything that is eclipsing this idea of the leak that occurred in the Supreme Court um, private uh, hearings and opinion writings. And when a judge's opinion and his writings about this subject kind of forecasting where it seems that the Roe versus Wade case is going, it has created quite a bit of uproar. Think about the political activism that uh, is uh, present in our society right now and even some violence and vandalism that has occurred in what people believe is going to happen with regard to Roe versus Wade, which, by the way, was a federal case in 1973 to offer federal protection to women who want to terminate their pregnancies. And with that being in the news right now, I thought we're going to be hearing about this all throughout the week. What? Are we going to look at as God's people to help us to have a biblical worldview on any subject? And I believe that that is as practical as can be. Since Roe versus Wade in January of 1973, there have been 63 million abortions that have uh, occurred. And if you do the math on that, that is about 3,000 a day in the United States since the legalization of abortion on the federal level, over 49 years ago. You know, I thought about what was the best way for me to approach our subject tonight. And I promise you up front, by way of introduction, that I'm not going to present on any of these slides any graphic pictures or graphic videos. I am not going to speak in any graphic terms. I believe that that's something that parents ought to be able to do with their children at the smallest ages. And so we're going to avoid that. I don't know that there is a subject that we might preach on that might be prone to cause more division in our country and strong emotion among people than our subject. And I don't want to do anything to inflame that division or to stoke unnecessarily that emotion. I thought about those pictures and those videos that might be shown, and here's what it would do. For people who already have a sensitivity and believe that a fetus is an unborn child, it would bring greater and unnecessary sorrow on such a one. And for one who believes that abortion is either morally right or neutral, I don't know that it would do anything to soften the heart in this discussion. What I want us to do tonight is, very briefly, look in three different directions. The directions that you could see on the title slide a moment ago, and for the Christian to be able to wade through all the noise that's going on on this subject, to be able to come to a biblical worldview on the subject of abortion. In order for us to do that, I think there are three directions that we can look at to try to determine how God feels on our subject. And the first place that we need to look in order to get an understanding of our subject tonight is in the field of biology. And in the field of biology, I think it's necessary for us to ask and answer at least a few very basic questions. 
And the first basic question of biology is, is that preborn, that fetus, human? And when we ask that question, there are various uh, views that we need to look into the area of ethics. And a man by the name of Norman Geisler wrote an excellent book with regard to the ethics of abortion. He also, in the consideration of that, said by way of introduction that when we're looking at an ovum, a hundred percent human, because it bears all the characteristics of a human being. When you have the egg, 23 chromosomes, and you have uh, the male sperm, 23 chromosomes, when those come together and at conception is a 46 chromosome, a distinct human being, the same as an adult. Now, Geisler does a lot of good to help us to understand what's going on in the gestation process. That is, as the baby goes from conception to birth, that can help us to answer that first question, is the pre-born fetus human? From a biological standpoint, what do we see going on? And so Geisler helps us as we go month by month in the first five months of a pregnancy. That first month he calls actualization. And actualization begins with conception. And at conception, all human characteristics are present in that conceived, fertilized egg. And about a week in, that, uh, that uh, fertilized egg is attached to the uterus of the mother's womb. And at about three weeks, the heart pulsates for the first time. So this is what is going on in the first four weeks. And you get to that second month of development in weeks five through eight. And what you have is what is called development. Here's where things begin to take off. At 42 days old, the baby's brain wave is detected. A skeleton begins to appear. The head and the arms and the legs begin to appear. And as we uh, come to examine that third stage, go into the third month, and that's uh, weeks 9 through 12. And by the way, I would encourage you to go and look at this because a whole lot more is going on during that time. You have what is called movement. When the baby squirms and swims and the baby moves its tongue and sucks its thumb, in the fourth month of the, the gestation period, you have what is called growth. At this time, the baby reaches... Uh, it's half of its birth weight. And there's growth in the auditory canals as the fetus can hear its mother's voice. And then in the fifth uh, month of that baby's uh, gestation is what is called viability, where hair and nails begin to appear. And the baby is dreaming. And the baby is crying. And as the, the result of this, this baby could be born and live outside of the mother's womb. Now, this and so much more is going on in the first five months. When we look at certain responses to that, I noticed that NPR, National Public Radio, published an article earlier this month in which they were seeking to dispel seven common things that are said concerning abortion. It's directed at those who would be opposed to the practice of abortion. And one of the things that they dispelled was the idea that there are a lot of late term pregnancies that are occurring. They shared information from the CDC in which it was found that 93% of all abortions are taking place before the 13th week of gestation. But when we look at 13 weeks, that is into the fourth month. And what is occurring at, by the fourth month of the pregnancy? There is a heartbeat. 
There is brain waves that are detectable. All the bodily functions and systems are present and they're functioning. A lot of what we're talking about is going on before a, a woman even knows that she is pregnant. And so as we look at the question, is that preborn fetus human? It bears all the characteristics of a human. All the salient characteristics. But then there's a second question that we might want to ask with regard to this, and that is, is the fetus simply a part of the mother? Is it just a part of her mother's body? You know, so often in the abortion debate, what is said by the pro-choice side is, it's my body, my choice. There was a writer in Oxford's thinking world, a woman who is a, a, a woman from the Netherlands and was a British professor, who said that, There's no other example in which the living thing is totally and at all times dependent upon the organism in which it is for survival than in the innermost insides of the person as with pregnancy. The one who wrote that article said that the fetus is simply a part of the mother's organism, a part of her body. Is that true? Is a baby simply a part of the mother Or is it inside of the mother? Is the baby a part of the mother or is the mother the host of that baby? Well, there's some things that are very interesting to notice with regard to the baby growing inside of the mother. The first thing is, is that very often that the baby has a different blood type from the mother. Not only that, but about half the time, the baby inside the mother is of a different gender than the mother. The eye color and the hair color very often is different in that fetus that's growing and the mother. And it's interesting when you look at certain cases that have reached the courts and what is said with regard to that. In an in vitro fertilization case in the United States in 1998, there was a woman who was implanted with eggs and she gave birth to a, a white baby and a black baby in what was known as a scrambled eggs case. Not only did it happen in the United States in 1998, but it happened five years earlier in the Netherlands. It's happened more than once. Interestingly, in the case that occurred in the United States, there was a court case about custody. Who was going to have custody of the black baby that was carried inside of the white mother? Though The surrogate parents who donated the material, they went to court wanting that child, and so did the mother. Guess who the courts gave the baby to? To the black parents. It's interesting that when we look at the characteristics going on inside of a child, that there's different DNA. There is a a unique set of characteristics in the baby that separates the baby from the mother. As we examine this from a biological standpoint, we come to understand that what is growing inside of that mother is not simply an impersonal fetus. It is a unique human being with all the salient characteristics of a human being. But then we turn in a different direction. And there's so much more in all of these that we could look at. But with regard to our study of abortion tonight, a second direction that we need to turn is toward the Bible. And when we look at the Bible, there are some questions we can ask in this about how God feels on the subject of abortion. And the first place that we can turn with regard to this is to see how God feels toward the unborn, the preborn child. 
Well, as we begin to examine in the Scriptures, we see that an unborn baby is said to be marvelously and miraculously and mysteriously formed inside the mother's womb. Now, this is not the biology part, but if we believe that the Bible is from God and is the Word of God, these are the claims that God is making with regard to our subject. Job in Job chapter 10 and verse 11 talks about how he was knit in his, uh, with his bones and his sinews in his mother's womb. And in Psalm 139 and verse 13, where David says, I will praise God for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He talks about how God had knit him in his mother's womb and had put him together and had curiously made him in his mother's womb. That God even had the, the days of his life counted out when there was none of them, knowing exactly how many days there would be of them. Now when we look at what God sees with regard to the pre-born child, he sees various individuals, he calls them by name, he knows what gender they are, and he even knows what he wants them to do. Now, man may step in and interfere with God's purpose, but when we look through both the Old and the New Testament, we see how individuals are identified from their mother's womb. For one, there's Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 1, we read about Isaiah who says that he was called by his name in his mother's womb, that God knew him when he was in his mother's womb. God knew he was going to prophesy to the nation. Same thing happens with Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I called you, I appointed you a prophet unto the nations. And then even with regard to Jacob and the entire nation that would be born of him, in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 2, God knew him from the womb and called him by the name Jacob. Then there's John the Baptist, the one who was the forerunner, who went ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, he is identified, he is known personally, he is seen as a human being. And then there's Samson, the one who would deliver Israel during the period of the judges. In Judges chapter 13, verse 1 through verse 7, God comes to Manoah, comes to his wife, and speaks specifically about not only the birth of Samson to come, but what kind of oath and vow that he was going to be able to be, to be subjected to. And then there's Jesus. The birth of Jesus was on this wise, when Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph, uh, became or conceived and was with child from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, being a good man and not wanting to make an example of her, had determined to put her away privately. And when he considered these things, an angel of the Lord came to him and said to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take unto you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. You want to talk about a complicated social situation? That's what Mary and Joseph faced. Not only that, when you consider their circumstances, you think this is the ultimate unplanned pregnancy, at least as far as the two of them are concerned. And from the consideration of the spiritual implications, if Mary had exercised choice and had terminated the pregnancy, what would that mean for all of us? Now, when you begin to look through the Bible, you see how God calls the unborn child a child, the same as He calls one who is born a child. Luke chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 16 uses personal pronouns with regard to the unborn child. Jesus was considered a child from the moment of conception. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And so when you take it all together, and there's so much more, 
God sees the unborn as a child, as a human being. But then we also ask ourselves, what does God say with regard to the shedding of innocent blood? You know, when you think about the defenselessness and the the powerlessness of a baby in the mother's womb, there is no one more uh, vulnerable than this population. And you begin to look at what Scripture says about this. There are provisions under the old law that can be helpful to us in coming to get a biblical ethic. There's the provisions of the old law with regard to offenses. We often refer to the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth and the magnitude that that goes to. If you go to Exodus chapter 21 and verse 22, there are various provisions. If a man strikes a man and he kills him, what happens in that case? Or if a man strikes a pregnant woman and she loses her child, Moses says, life for life. How did God, through Moses, see the unborn child under the old law? That baby in the womb was seen as human, as an adult who was being fought and who lost his life in anger. Well, then there's what Solomon says in Proverbs 6, in verse 17. He says that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And one of the things that he abhors are hands that shed innocent blood. In Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10, God through Moses says there is to be no shedding of innocent blood in the land. When we see the biblical ethic, how God looks at the unborn in the Old and the New Testament, we can form a biblical worldview that says that the unborn child is a baby, is a human being with as much value and need of protection as any other human being does. Well, I want to look at a third point. And at the risk of making my wife grimace, it does start with a B. We have biology, we have the Bible, and I want to look at Babylon. And yes, I do start it with a B because it will help you to remember it perhaps better. But here's the way in which I use the word Babylon. You know, the word Babylon is used in both the Old and the New Testament in a literal sense and in a figurative sense. When we think about Babylon in the Old Testament, they were a real people. They were the people that God used to punish Judah, take them into captivity for 70 years as punishment for their sins. You see in the prophets writing and saying that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is a sword, is a tool in the hands of God. But when we look at Babylon, Babylon very quickly comes to represent a godless and uh, a culture that is contrary to the will of God. Even as the punishment is going to take place with regard to God's people, even at that time, God says, but here's the judgment that I have regarding Babylon. In Isaiah 13 and 14, God through Isaiah says that Babylon is going to fall. In fact, in Isaiah 21 and verse 9, he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Well, why is that? Well, Jeremiah gives us one reason. In Jeremiah 51, God through Jeremiah says that Babylon was going to be destroyed because of their idolatry. They had put some things, some things above God. They had replaced God with another standard, another thing. Well, then we begin to look at other passages like Isaiah chapter 47, verse 10 and verse 11. And we see that Babylon was going to be destroyed because of their wickedness. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 7, Belshazzar has Daniel before him and uh, there's the writing on the wall. And as this disembodied hand is writing, 
Belshazzar wants to know what it means. And so Daniel interprets it for him. He says, in part of that, that you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. He's talking about Belshazzar and his kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. And as Isaiah said in Isaiah 47 and verse 11, it's going to happen suddenly. And it did. That was Babylon in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you'll find Babylon mentioned, at least in two books, in 1 Peter and the book of Revelation. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, Babylon represented that godless culture that oppressed and hurt the people of God. 1 Peter is devoted to telling us as Christians how to live faithfully when we suffer for Christ. And the book of Revelation is written to tell us that we are going to overcome. If we're faithful to God, even though we may be hurt by the enemies of God, ultimately we're going to win. And in both of those books... The writers used Babylon in a figurative sense. By the time of the First Testament, Babylon was not a world power. The Roman Empire was. And so when Peter speaks of Babylon in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13, he's talking about Rome. And then in Revelation 17 and 18, the great Babylon, Revelation 16 and verse 19, who is going to fall, Revelation 18 and verse 21, he is talking about Rome. And he says that culture can assault God's way and God's people in two ways. There's through the front door of persecution by the government, and there's the back door through an immoral culture. But the bottom line is that those who stand against God and God's people are not ultimately going to win. Now I say all that to say that Babylon represents Rome and that nation Babylon and any nation that leaves God and in leaving God and changing God for something else must understand that at some point the wrath of God cannot be abated, cannot be avoided You know, we live at a time in which we have the ability to see the unborn like never before. Have you noticed that some of you may work in uh, the the medical field in which you have a regular chance to view uh, ultrasounds? Have you seen the 3D and the 4D ultrasounds? All you got to do is Google the pictures or go to YouTube and see the videos of the unborn as young as 14 weeks old. And that ultra high definition, you can see what's growing inside the mother's womb. It should give us a great conviction that what is growing inside of that mother is a viable preborn human being and as we consider that we think about our nation a nation that in just the last half century has aborted 63 million babies now with regard to babylon this part of the lesson i want to just consider three passages very briefly and in that illustrate what we're talking about In the first passage, I have Proverbs 17, 6. What I meant was Judges 17 and verse 6. It's a statement that's made two times in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. If you think about a lot of the debate and a lot of the anger that's going on right now, it's because of a fear that the American public will not have the right to do what it is that they want to do and that they think that it's right whenever they want to do it. And that's where the debate is centering right now. The question is, as the scriptures in Proverbs 16.25 put it, is it for man to decide what's right? Jeremiah Jeremiah 10.23, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man to direct his own steps. What if we were to change the boundaries? 
and make the same arguments with regard to the unborn for those who are newly born or for those who are at the very end of life and who are infirm and maybe even terminal. You see, a lot of the arguments that are used for abortion are arguments that would work for infanticide and euthanasia. Arguments that would say if if a baby or or one who is elderly or anyone is deformed or if it's a result of poverty or as a result of undesirability, the same arguments that are used for the unborn could be used for these other vulnerable groups. There's another passage, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, where Isaiah says, Woe unto those that call evil good and good evil. That substitute light for darkness and darkness for light. That put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. If you have been keeping up with what's going on with regard to this, it seems like the rhetoric is getting hotter and hotter. In fact, there are those in rallies who are saying that we will be ungovernable if this law changes. And by the way, in in the revoking of Roe versus Wade, it is not an abolition of abortion. It is moving it from the federal level to the state's level to let states uh, be able to decide about that. What they're saying is this will be the summer of rage. And one supposes that if Roe versus Wade is struck down, will there be violence? Will there be riots? But on the other side of that, how much sorrow is there? over even a single aborted child. Woe unto those who call good evil and evil good. One other passage that I want us to consider is Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, where the Apostle Paul said, in a general sense with regard to sin, be not mocked, God is not deceived, for whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap eternal life. It's an interesting thing to see that there are stricter penalties that are imposed for one who disturbs uh, the bald and the golden eagle's uh, eggs than for the unborn. You realize that since 1940 there has been a prohibition about even stealing, much less injuring or destroying a bald or golden eagle's eggs. And today on the books, on a first offense, you can face a one hundred dollars to $200,000 fine for the first offense. The second offense is considered a felony that goes permanently on your record. You see, we've got to be aware of the fact that as our culture moves away from God, we increasingly have got to be countercultural. We've got to be courageous enough to stand where God stands, even if it draws the criticism and the opposition of others. So where should we as the people of God stand? How should we react to this? What does God want from you and me as we go out from this place? I want to answer that first negatively. In the negative, we are not to go out and to uh, practice worldly responses to this. God under no circumstances wants us to act in anger and in violence that's sinful in any way. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 through verse 12, in the most wicked of governments under the Roman Empire, you don't have Peter saying, you go out and you do whatever you have to to annihilate the enemy. That's not what he said. He says, you return cursing with blessing. Vengeance is in God's hands. It doesn't ever belong in ours. Hebrews 10 and verse 31. And in the negative, we are also not to become obsessed about this. Because what matters most is the kingdom matters that the Lord has laid out for us, Matthew 6 and verse 33. 
It might not surprise you to know that this was not a sermon that I was itching to preach. It's not an enjoyable sermon. It may not be a very enjoyable sermon to listen to. It is a sermon, I believe, that needs to be preached so that we can examine where from a rational standpoint, if we believe in God and His Word, where should we stand with regard to this? But this is not our prime objective. It's just a part of what is in our culture today. But what about on the positive side? How should we respond from this, to, to this going forward? First of all, we need to pray. We need to pray, certainly, for the unborn. We need to pray for fathers and for mothers. We need to pray for our great nation. We need to pray for our legislators and those who are in a place of authority. And pray, certainly, we want to pray for peace, but we want to pray that God's will is done. It will be done. We certainly want to pray that. We also need to make sure that we are in a place and in a position to where we can offer hope and love and support and encouragement and help to minister to those who perhaps have uh, been one who has had an abortion. To show them kindness and love and to demonstrate to them from God's word the power of God's grace and of his forgiveness. We also want to find ourselves in a place, and it brings us right back to where we were this morning. What we can do positively is we can teach the gospel. As it regards any specific matter, the answer is one soul at a time with the life-saving message, the eternal life-giving message of God's Word. Let's not be neutral about this in our heart. Let's not certainly be callous. As much as a curse, 3,000 a day for 49 years, it's easy for us to lose sight of exactly what's going on. But in that, let's be God's people shining a light that can help those who are searching for truth and for the answers through our example and our interaction with them can help them to certainly see and to revere God's word on every matter. Kaysen's going to lead us in a song of invitation. It may be that there's some need that you have tonight that we can help you with. If this is your invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?